0: Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is writer and performer Zadika Poindexter. In the show, Poindexter shares her passion for community and stories and talks about her poems, essays, and performances that draw on complexities of race, class, struggle, and joy. Poindexter also shares how that creative expression now is in the form of a choreo poem, unearthing the lived experience of healthcare disparities encountered by black women.
1: I want to be remembered in the specific smell of biscuits, butter, and preserves, and the tang of pears pulled from a local tree, sealed and safely packed away for the winter.
0: Zadiga Poindexter is a North Omaha-born writer and performer and is co-executive director with Gina Trinisi of the Nebraska Writers' Collective. Poindexter's body of poems and essays draws on all five physical senses to connect with readers and listeners. By sharing stories of people in her community, She creates a relationship with her audience and guides them through the world as she sees and experiences it. Poindexter has earned numerous awards and accolades, including the Best Performance Poet Award from Omaha Entertainment and Arts, a Public Impact Grant from Amplify Arts, being awarded the Union for Contemporary Arts Inside Outside Fellowship Prize, and being recognized as a Nebraska Arts Council Artists in Schools recipient. Zadika Poindexter, welcome to LIVES.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I've been in this community for uh, two decades now, and I think as long as I've known of you, I've known you as a creative, performative, committed community person. Where did this come from? I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about you know, what stands out to you from your childhood.
1: I mean, I'm, I was very lucky. I was raised by a mother who was Read a lot, and by a grandmother who had like all three books, three books in her bag at all time, and they were random stuff. It would be like the autobiography of Leaiaoka and a romance novel and Richard Wright. Like she would just bounce between them. I still actually have some of her books, which are some of my most prized possessions. So there was really no way that I wasn't going to be connected to words, and also because I am a kid of the Great Migration, my family started in the South, went up to Chicago, and then came here to work in the packing houses. There's a way. There's idioms that we use in a way of communicating that is just so interesting and there's so much packed into it. There's just a world of writing and a word of world of storytelling that's involved in being involved in part of a family like that. I adore them for giving me that kind of basis. They just told great stories. And my grandmother was wonderful for really crass one-liners, usually while, like, smoking a palm Mall. So, like... <laughs> I am what they made me. I just, this came to me very, very naturally. I always wanted to write and always have in some manner or another, though it took until I was an adult fully leaned into it as trying to, like, put together poems and learning what it meant to be a writer of poetry and also to perform.
0: The bio you shared with me makes explicit reference to the fact that you were born and raised in North Omaha. Clearly, that's an important facet of your life and and how you uh, explore community. What is it about North Omaha for you that has a particular resonance that you want to both recognize and honor in some way?
1: The interesting thing about Omaha, as much as we've progressed and I love the city, we are still pretty segregated. And so growing up in a Basically, black community. It wasn't like there was a lot of other people moving in and out of my neighborhood. We were going to be in North Omaha, and we were going to be maligned for being in North Omaha, and we were going to have very weird assumptions made about us, especially when we ventured out to start to talk, starting to talk to people from other parts of the city or other parts of the state, saying that we're from North Omaha. Like I went to Druid Hill Elementary. I went to McMillan Junior High. I graduated from Omaha North High. I'm proud of all of those things. Other people hear those things that I'm proud of and assume things like, oh, well, have you been shot? How many kids do you have? Or all these really interesting stories that were incredibly negative. And I want to own the fact that I'm proud of where I am. And it wasn't perfect, but no neighborhood is. The difference is when they talk about what happens that might not be great for my neighborhood, it is turned into something that is endemic of all of us. And when something terrible happens in another neighborhood, it's an isolated incident not an indictment of everyone who lives in a certain
0: zip code. How are you trying to connect with the stories that you have experienced yourself but also you see around you in in the community writ large that you're trying to capture and share more broadly?
1: When I talk about uh, the concept of being a child of the Great Migration, that's a lot of what I'm talking about right now. A lot, I spend a lot of time uh, writing food stories, right? So like most people who have seen me perform at some point mention a poem about peach cobbler. And to a certain extent, that is very much an ode to my grandmother and having old school family dinners. But there's also things in it about class and what it means to be linked to the idea of getting commodities on a cert- at a certain period of time. It's also about the idea of community and what it means to share a table with someone. It's about languages and ways of eating foods and even what salt means to some people or what cumin means to some people or what paprika means to some people. It's about all these things that are also languages. We all speak English, but the way that you season your food is a language. The way that I meet my elders and automatically give them honorifics is a language language. The way that I see somebody I went to high school with and start automatically referencing Mr. Principal, now principal retired, but Gene Haines, who called everybody (laughs) brother and sister, is a language. Like all of those things are part of what makes me a poet because I've been hearing these things. They're part of how I navigated the world. They're part of what connects me linguistically to other people, even if they're not blood related to me it's being able to say hey kelly's liquor on north 30th street which was around the corner from where we lived we, back in the days when we were like it was long enough ago where i could go buy cigarettes for my mother because they knew who my mother was and i would not go in and go anywhere with them because my mother knew what i was doing being a part of any community and that could be a family or it can be a friend group comes with shared languages and shared experiences and i'm lucky enough to have that and I'm even luckier because sometimes I see connections between things that I'm able to capture in poetic form. And so when I'm on stage and I'm reading a poem about peach cobbler or a negative experience with the medical industry or anything else like that, I'm able to build these connections. That's, all I, that's why I lean so hard into the five senses. If there's nothing between us, with these words that I have coming out of my mouth, if I lean hard enough into the senses that we have in common, we build a moment of shared understanding. And in my neighborhood and what people assume I am because of where I was raised is demystified and destigmatized stigmatized And that's incredibly important to me.
0: It was a little while ago now, but a former guest on on this show, Celeste Butler, it was related to a, a different project, but she was sharing with me what it meant to be able to be in North Omaha and smell the baking that was happening at Sadie's Bakery. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of that because the way you're talking about Peach Cobbler as a poem, but everything it represents and how it conjures up something really almost tangible uh, to our senses, makes me want to ask, what is it about your dexterity with language that can conjure that and how did you layer that even further by working in other artifacts or elements that do create a sensory involvement with the work in your audience?
1: I mean if you talk to most people like smell and taste are these really heavy instantly relatable senses like if someone tastes something that reminds them of home like their eyes close, they start to salivate like that's just what happens if you smell something that is specific to an to an old memory like that's going to automatically come up for you that's why when I was writing all these food pieces I was so fixated on what is it what does your mouth feel like if you're eating a fresh peach what is the texture what is the ratio of cinnamon and nutmeg well, like what is that What does that look like? Or how do I describe that via words? So much so that I've built up basically a dinner party worth of poems that I am determined, and I can say it on the radio, because that will hold me to it. This year, I want to have a poetic dinner party where I read all these poems and serve the food that they're about. So we not only have this shared moment that is built through the written poems, but also you get to experience this piece of my life in multiple levels you get to smell it you get to taste it you get to touch it and you get to hear it so even if you're not sitting in my grandma's kitchen you kind of get to see a part of me and i think that's Building connections is what I do as a writer. I see myself first and foremost as a storyteller, and if I can build in other things to kind of make it multimodal, to build in other senses, that's really important to me. When I did my final show for The Union, it was very much the same thing, like it was a pandemic. We couldn't see anybody. It was maddening, so I built everybody who participated in the show a sensory kit.
0: So I'm I'm going to just set this up then for the audience. Okay. So um, this was a creative piece called Sense of the Pandemic. Yes and uh, you developed it as, as part of your collaboration with the union for contemporary mm-hmm. arts it can be viewed online yes. if people go to your website they can they can actually watch this now because there's a video yes of your performance so let me hand it back to you
1: okay thank you so let me say that i adore the union um and the work that they're doing i have nothing but complete adoration for that organization and their and their leadership um i've been a fellow there twice and during my second fellowship it was um all black women who were actually working in the fellowship, including us, Butler. Um, and Pam, Pamela Conyers Hilton. So like it was a powerhouse group of humans that I was just, you know, hanging out and they working with. And I decided I really wanted to talk about what it was to live through the pandemic, which is a very specific thing to any family based on who you are. And I also had the, I'll use the word audacity, possibly insanity. I got married bought a house got a new job like all of this during the pandemic and i wanted to talk about and we had black lives matter in there and all these other things that were happening and i wanted to talk about what it felt like to live through that and i knew that i always leaned into trying to do sensory writing so i did five essays for each of the five physical senses and i wanted at first i was like can you let me take over the union and have each room dedicated to a different physical sense and they were like it's COVID. no <laughs> fair. So the best my cheat code was instead of doing that because I knew it was going to be recorded, I created little sensory kits that had something you could smell, something you could touch, something you could taste. So as I was walking through each thing, people had the opportunity to kind of experience in a, on another level what I was talking about. And I absolutely it was one of my favorite works because I'm a poet by nature. It was the first time I foreited into something like a series of longer essays that were rooted in things that that talked about things a little bit differently than I normally did. I was really, really proud of that work, and it's kind of what positioned me to start applying later for Amplify Arts.
0: I think there's clearly a part of your career experience and your creative methodologies that you Mm -hmm. use that is both prose and poetry, but not just the written word. Obviously the written word is key, but there's a very important performative aspect Mm -hmm. to your creative expression. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your first introduction to slam poetry. Oh, and- happily. Okay.
1: <laughs> All right, so the current Nebraska State poet is Matt Mason, who is an old and dear friend of mine. Um, so the first time I went to a slam, it was at where Dewspace was in the new old Midtown Omaha Library will be. It used to be a Borders bookstore, and he used to host a slam there. And I went there and read a poem, and he walked up and said, you are really talented. And he gave me a Pop-Tart. And I was like, oh wait, there's validation from someone who doesn't know me from a can of paint. Maybe I'm okay at this. And it was kind of cool. And then I started attending other open mics, including those that were um, hosted by Felicia Webster and Michelle Troxclair, who are local powerhouses in the spoken word scene. Navigating those spaces taught me the power of a lot of things. You can write an amazing poem and it can affect people on the page. When, When you learn how to control your volume and your breath and to utilize call and response and to kind of like get down in the grit and the base of your voice even though that's not your natural tone or to randomly burst out into song you quote things that the audience knows so it automatically gets them invested in the piece there's a power in that like the oral tradition is real and so incredibly powerful i love the fact that i can write a, a nice page poem but what's in my bones is getting in front of an audience and building that moment of connection. Like my voice is my tool. Um, and even though it's changed over the years, it's still something that is inherent to the way that I want to share my work. I There's lots of people who do slam for a season and then move away from it, that's fine. It's different people's path. But the feeling I had when I went to that first slam, the feeling that I had every time I went to verbal gumbo, the feeling that I had the first time I saw Patricia Smith, who's my favorite poet, on a HBO stuff poetry jam, like that feeling—that's the thing that I keep connecting to. I love the performative piece of my work. I always will.
0: Did you know that at the beginning, so at some point that you're describing this first experience with SLAM, mm-hmm. I imagine that you had been writing poetry, yes. but, I, but I don't know what was that catalyst or that epiphany that the performing of the work was the important part.
1: The first thing was going to the um, a connection, a combination of Felicia's old, old, old open mic and then Matt's uh, SLAM that was at Borders. Um, first it was that. And then some time passed and I ended up moving to another city and I was sitting on my couch and saw HBO's "The Poetry Day. And I was like, cool, this is poetry. And I turned on my TV and I saw the first episode and saw Patricia Smith and literally sat there and said, I don't know what the hell that is, but I need to do that. And then the next week I went and found an open mic in town. And there I met the, who, the person who was the Poet Laureate for the Kennedy Center Imagination Celebration in Colorado Springs, who worked with me for a while, and I was on my first SLAM team in Colorado Springs. And I have been around and connected to SLAM ever since, and that was 2001? That feels right.
0: Is there, to you, a difference between writing poetry for the page and writing poetry for slam
1: that's tricky to answer because because for me i don't think there is because if you're ever around me when i'm trying to write a piece especially one that i'm trying to like get out of my bones i look like a loon i am literally pacing and talking to myself trying to get the lines to form in my mouth properly before i write them down And then once I get them written down and kind of see what they look like in the page, then I start playing with them a little bit. It might be the same poem, but the way you lead into line breaks or spacing or where your stanza breaks are can change. But for me, oftentimes when I'm dealing, especially if I'm dealing with longer pieces, there's not a separation between how they, the words that are used. It's just about how the words are presented.
0: You've talked about, slam poetry Mm -hmm. and the creative pieces that you're conjuring almost as if it's something bigger than you and it has to be expelled from your bones into the world how do you get to know what sort of form of performance or choreography or or embodiment is required by the piece I mean does it tell you uh, Zadika you need to do this this way and not that way
1: I think some of it does. There are times when I'm writing a piece and there's almost electricity in your fingers and you just know that you're doing something right. You're probably gonna have to edit it because you get excited and all manner of things can happen, but you know that you're on the right path. After that, I guess I don't know. I spend so much time talking my poems out loud. Like I'm in a poetry class right now um, at Metro with the amazing Liz Kay and every time I write a poem I read it out loud five or ten times and that's how I edit it because sometimes it's like hmm that word doesn't need to be there because I keep skipping it so obviously it's not that important or I keep tripping over this maybe I need to change the way it the way I'm saying it out loud or even you know what I've been ranting and railing and yelling what does it sound like if I just get really low and deliberate with the way that I'm communicating this to you maybe you can't do that as well on the page but when I'm on stage I love the idea of being able to play with those volumes and kind of draw people in in um, different ways. I'm playing with a poem right now uh, that's going to be part of the Omaha Entertainment and Arts Awards. And it actually is one of the first times that I'm going to get to use like my deep register in a way that I have in years because I just didn't think that I could. And I'm excited about it. So, yeah, I think the poem can tell you if you play with it and then you can do the old school slam trick where first you read the entire poem like you're sad and then the entire poem like you're happy or then you whisper the entire poem or you yell the entire poem and after you do that enough times you pick up your highs and lows from figuring out how it hits and moves choreography has always been tougher for me though I'm kind of a stand and because I'm honestly still have stage fright I am not much of a mover on stage my hands move a lot but my body tends to unless I'm involved in a choral piece kind of stationary.
0: You've performed at really senior national levels. You're an acknowledged um, talent you know, nationally. So I do want to make that clear, despite your nerves and your uh, humility, that, that you really are recognized as a talented national slam poet.
1: That's so wild. Because I know
0: the really good people. <laughs> and you're one of them. Uh, you're one of them. Do you feel most you when you're on stage letting this creativity out? Or is the real you the person that's kind of pacing around trying to work on a poem? Are you some amalgam? Are you someone completely different? When do you, when do you feel most who you are?
1: So there's this weird old analogy that I remember and I don't know where it's from. I can't figure it out. But, like, I'm always a yellow light. But sometimes I'm with another yellow white and I'm deeply yellow. Sometimes I'm with the blue light and I'm green. Sometimes I'm with the red light and I'm orange. I think it's that, like, so there's the hyper hyper me, I guess that is staged me and somewhat organizational leader me because sometimes you just have to be the superhero version of yourself in order to be able to lead a nonprofit especially in today's political and uh, financial climate. Um and then there's the I'm going to bake cookies with my daughter to make sure she understands what it means to be able to like get your hands in dough and roll it out and cut it. That's a me as well. And then there's, this has been great. I love the stage and I hung out with all y'all and now everybody's asleep and I can pretend like I'm in the house alone and I'm just going to sit here and breathe deep for a couple hours. I think they're all me. It's just, they're not all situationally appropriate me. I feel like I'm a, I'm a pretty true version of myself consistently. Um, but the me stage me is definitely hyper distilled big me. And I don't necessarily get to be that. Well, I guess if you ask my husband, he would say I'm that all the time. But he's also an extreme introvert. Um, so I talk enough for the both of us. Um, but I think that's just a different me than the other ones. But they're all valid, I think.
0: You off air sh- shared with me that you'd had a surgery. Mm-hmm. And you showed me the scar, which mm-hmm. is on your just beneath your neck mm-hmm. and it's pretty substantial yes but I wonder if you could explain what that surgery was for because then I can ask you about its impact
1: okay absolutely I reference this in a poem I'm going to read later so we'll talk about it a little bit but like I couldn't breathe I've always knew that I had an enlarged thyroid because that's kind of normal in my family. Like my mother had a thyroid removed. My grandmother had thyroid problems. That was normal. It's like, yeah, you got a goiter, you're fine. And the, but I could not breathe, could not And you know, they were like, Oh, you're fine, just lose some weight. Just had a baby. You'll be fine. And eventually I was I remember because I was at the DMV and it was the last day of the month and I needed to get my plates and I was like, this is this is wrong. And I just walked into the yard and I was like, Y'all better figure this out because this this is not right. And they took a scan and found a huge mass in my chest. And we're like, Oh, you should talk to your doctor tomorrow. Cool, 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 cool. And we didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was cancer. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And eventually they found out that my thyroid, like most people get goiters that push out of their neck, my particular type of goiter pushed down and moved my heart and lungs out of the way. Um, and I knew it was gonna be something of an involved surgery. What I did not understand is it was so large and so immalleable that they had to cut me basically from neck to navel and then use the like chest spreaders to get it out. Um and the wild part is because I've been a performance poet at this point for a very, very long time, and I couldn't talk because during the process, they first they stretched my nerves. And then I sounded like not me. If you've even if you hate hearing recordings of yourself, which is not, you know, uncommon for humans, um, you know what you sound like. Like you can hear it and you recognize yourself. The strangest part of the entire process was I didn't recognize myself anymore. And the thing that I haven't done a lot of investigation of, which I think is probably a valid point of inquiry, is whether or not I write different because I write orally and I sound different. I think that's because my writing is different now, but I'm also older. I also have an eight-year-old. I also am married. I also was a drug rep traveling around for Pfizer for years, so there's different life experiences in there. But there's no way with the way that I write that there's not some kind of a downstream effect. I just haven't nailed down what that difference is yet.
0: Well, you've anticipated the question, how has that changed your sense of identity, and how has that changed how you approach creativity?
1: I also, I was younger. I would say anything. I was wild. I maybe needed some more boundaries than I had. (laughs) Um, But I think about how I'm able to communicate things, so that like it does possibly play into the page versus stage conversation. Like I can write this, and I assume it's powerful that way. But I don't know if I can push it out of my body in the appropriate way. But also, one way it affected me is the way I do stage shows. You will very rarely hear me perform work that was written prior to my surgery. Because it sounds wrong. The, only, the most common thing people will hear me do is peach cobbler. But it feels so much like home. I can kind of cheat code my way around it. But very often, I'm performing work that is newer than that.
0: You mentioned that uh, you have a, a piece of your work associated with this Ooh. surgery. Um, would now be a good time to invite you, please, to share that with us.
1: This is still in the editing processes. So here we are. It's called Three Patients. Patient number one, black female, 68. Loves red packaged palm malls, Geraldo Rivera, and that thick cut bologna, bologna with red rings around the edges. Complaints, diarrhea, pain, and weight loss. Self-diagnosis, bubble guts. Treatment, warm, flat Dr. Pepper and Pepto-Bismol. Patient number two, black female, 53. Ex-military and menthol aficionado. Wicked chess game and graveyard shift superstar complaints stomach and chest pain and nausea diagnosis indigestion treatment every antacid on the market patient 3 black female 40 90 days part postpartum never shuts up calls herself a poet complaints chest pain and shortness of breath diagnosis in layman's terms bitch you fat and you just dropped a baby treatment Lose some weight and take a diuretic. In each case, we're supposed to be fine. We saw doctors, we accepted treatments. We did not get better. Patient one, my grandmother. Riddled with cancer so far gone they could not operate. She died in a still mortgage house less than six months later from the same illness that took out half her siblings. Patient number two, my mother. Fought, who fought and fought and finally had a test that found a tumor so large she got it removed, she got moved to the top of the surgery list. Half her stomach was removed and she still has a crescent-shaped scar as a reminder. Patient number three, me. I got tired of shallow breathing my way through every day and walked myself into the ER. They found a three-pound tumor pushing my heart and lungs out of the way. I guess I really did need to lose some weight to diagnosis to identify the nature of an illness, to find what's wrong. The real problem, not the first option after a 13.5-minute patient interaction and figuring out which pill the hospital or drug companies prefer. It is statistically likely, a statistically likely scenario that what's wrong is less likely to be found. Before I say a word about my actual symptoms, I have a list of assumptions working against me. Because I've been diagnosed as black, as a woman, as strong, as having drug-seeking behavior, as having bad lifestyle choice, choices, as underinsured, as hysterical, as treatment plan noncompliant, as intimidating, as talking too damn long and we need to keep it moving to the next patients. Doctors cannot diagnose what they cannot see. Correction. Doctors cannot diagnose who they will not see, who they won't hear over the noise of their superficial vision. You have to see us. You have to listen to us. You have to know that of all the things you might think in this appointment, here's what you should know. My body and experience deserve to be regarded with your full attention. I want to live. I will accept nothing less than your best care. So when you go back to write down my patient notes, include the following my grandmother didn't believe she would be listened to it cost her her life my mother wasn't listened to and spent months in pain i had to yell at an emergency room tech for something i had been calming calmly trying to explain my doctor for months and as long as i have voice to say something this will not happen again not ever ever again
0: thank you so much for sharing that thank you there's a line in there where you talk about being diagnosed as black. Mm -hmm. You were selected and recognized by Amplify Arts Mm -hmm. to be a recipient of a public impact grant. And the general focus of that grant was to look at disparities faced by black women Mm -hmm. in the healthcare system. Yes. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, that project?
1: Yes. Actually, this is... What I just read was part of that larger project, especially because when I got this grant, we were coming out of COVID, where we learned so many things. The disparities in healthcare were always there, to be clear. But when something is killing people off constantly, and then it's hyper-focused on a community that looks like yours, it kind of comes even more to the forefront. And even things like finding out pulse oximeters, oximeters, I may be saying that wrong, that fits on your finger. When you go to the doctor's office, yeah, those don't work as well as on brown-skinned people. They found that out during COVID. Surprise! Which is a really great time to know. Or there was this doctor named, uh, I think her name was Susan Moore. I have it written down in a different poem. And she went into a full-fledged doctor, internist, knew what she was talking about, in the hospital, had COVID. They eventually put her out. She was on Facebook Live pleading for a life. They checked her out. She was dead within a week. The hospital administrator had the unmitigated gall to write a statement that said they were probably intimidated by her. If I sit in a circle of other women, black women, and talk about horror stories I've had with the medical establishment, the scariest thing other than my personal experience and the idea I have to figure out how to make sure my daughter knows how to navigate this, is the fact that every other woman in the circle has a similar story. Not about the same diagnosis, because some of them it's ER, sometimes it's pregnancy, sometimes it's mental health, but we all have a story. And when people talk about institutional distrust, they try to root it in something other than the fact our institutional distrust is not based on fairy tale. It's not based on legend. It's not based on the Tuskegee syphilis study. It's not based on any of these things. It's it's not based on the history of gynecology, which is super scary and racist. It's based on the fact that in our lives, we've had to fight for our lives while talking to people who are supposed to save them. And that's what this is about. It's about trying to get down to the point where we can get to a point of shared understanding. I'm not imagining this. If I go to a doctor's office and someone gives me a shot and then follows it up with, huh, I can never tell where I stick you people. That's a problem. <laughs> and I want to talk about the idea of our experiences and put them forth in an art piece because sometimes if I'm talking about something in a poem, the you that I might be talking to doesn't see themselves as the you right they can kind of go oh that's really jacked up people shouldn't do that and then maybe if I'm really lucky and I write this piece correctly and get it in front of practitioners or people who are in school it's a great moment for them and they get to come see a play that I'm proud of fabulous but also if the next thing they do is see a patient and don't do that then I have done one small thing that I adore that has possibly affected hundreds of patients down the line for each and every practitioner who interacts with it because they understand that we're just not here having this conversation for nothing. It is rooted in true concern about our welfare. And oftentimes they try to frame it as something other than that. It's not like people hate doctors. We hate how we're made to feel when we're trying to be able to talk to them.
0: I've heard you say that I am, at my core, a huge nerd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, on the one hand, I think the way the public sees you is, is as a creative performer, and many other guises, the work that you do broadly with writers. But they perhaps don't appreciate that there's that part of you where you self-identify as this nerd.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's a race to the bottom of my house. Like my husband's a computer nerd, and I'm a book nerd. Like my daughter was going to get, she's going to be weird. Like She came by it honestly. Um, so yeah, like I just am. Like I'm writing a, cur- a series of pieces off Stranger Things because it's just weird and random. And why not? Because I can. Or the way certain words sound that I fixate on. Like the word distraught is just a really great sounding word, right? Or discombobulated. They're just great words. How could you just not love words? <laughs>
0: Well, this work that you're doing with the Public Impact Grant, it feels to me as if you are taking a subject which could be so important and essential, but it can be quite dry from a medical journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, these disparities are documented, they're studied, uh, there are the data that we can review, but it doesn't touch you yeah. in the same way. And, and I'm curious if you see the unique potential of this project, this creative project, to connect the nerd in you, mm-hmm. the data, with the real stories and this this culmination of a creative outlet.
1: I do. Someone asked me when I was in the process of pitching this project, like, why? Like, you could just write a paper. And I was like, well, yeah. I could if I if my goal was to get it published in a journal and or to go to some random national event in Pasadena and you know hang out with the Tweed Jacket folks I could do that it's not what I want to do I am a storyteller and I think the story lives and breathe and it breathes in a way that can talk to people via data yes it can absolutely be some kind of a study it can absolutely be a discussion or an ethnography cool absolutely also I want to be in a place where I'm having conversations with people who have had those same experiences because what does it look like if the people on stage performing it with me have had those experiences what does it look like if we follow it up with a talk back from people who are like I'm not nuts let me tell you about this thing and how it's pushed forward that was part of what I pitched I want those of us who have been affected by this process to not just be a part of the data that drives this art piece but also a part of the conversations that we have after it, to be able to have conversations and questions and to say, you know what? This matters. And if I tell you a story, they will try to say, oh, that happened to me too, or oh, that can happen to anyone. But the fact of the matter is it happens to us. And you can have those other conversations and they're valid to be had, but there is a trend with how we experience healthcare. And that story is important because if we don't talk about it, if we don't start pulling down barriers, if we don't get out of our egos and our feelings and our stereotypes, people who look like my family die, and that is untenable to me, can't happen. So we're gonna keep talking about it.
0: The creative expression, you've, you've talked a little bit about this being on stage, mm-hmm. a play, um, and, and so the connection to a poem, I've, I've heard you describe this as a choreo poem. I don't know what that is. So what is this creative form?
1: Welcome to Word Nerd Land. We're going to talk about choreo poems. Do you know who Ntozake Shenge is? Please okay. tell me. She is um, a fantastic poet and writer, and she wrote for color Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. Now, if you've ever now, and incidentally was the first big performance I was in when I moved to Omaha. So it's just, it's a series of poems that are connected with movement and color and they're in an interweaving story of a group of women who are in similar spaces and kind of supporting each other. It is a fantastic multi-layered piece of literature. It is brilliant. Um, and there's movement built into it. So instead of you writing a play, which is a valid thing to do, I'd love to have more skill in that process. It's more like a series of choral poems that are just kind of connected together thematically. The way I'm building this one very much is rooted in the idea that I want to have a chorus in the background. So like we're up in front and we're talking about like we're talking about a specific thing and literally when we have a red flag where no, that shouldn't be happening. I want my chorus to go, "Oh hell, no, you can't. No." Or if something else is going up here, and there's some kind of um, psychological or theoretical construct that explains what's happening in technical terms, actually have them read it in a very dry voice in the background, and then have someone up front through the theatrical piece of it be able to explain that it's just a series of poems that move and act like a poem, but also could be broke apart into smaller, I guess, slam-like pieces. Yeah, it's it's so much fun because more movement and poetry are built into the. Theatrical writing of
0: it. Speaking about how you want to involve the audience, are there going to be elements of you know a multi-sensory component to this work? And and you mentioned also talkbacks. How how do you want to kind of pull the audience into wrestling with the material?
1: I think it has to be finished first before I can really say that. Um, because oftentimes the sensory components that you weave in are after after you do a read through, and you're like, oh, it would be great if someone else understood X, Y, or Z. And some of it is just a matter of like functionality or safety. If you tell the people they're coming into a play and you're going to talk about injections, and they think they're going to get poked, they probably won't come. So um I have to figure out exactly how that's gonna work. Um part of it, the visual part of it is going to be a little bit easier. The auditory part of it is going to be something that's built into the piece, but I have to figure out the rest. It's going to be while I talk about senses and feelings in the actual text. This might be a harder one to do go into my actual wheelhouse, which is let's do weird stuff and try to like see what happens if I can spray incense in the background or to get people's senses involved. I can't necessarily maybe do that I don't know yet we're gonna find out soon cuz I gotta finish the project and I'm it will be the thing that pushes me the furthest as an artist because it merges my training so when I was in school um, I went to UNO and I was in the communications program I talked about health communications so what happens if you build a health program what happens if you build a health education campaign like that kind of information So it merges my educational background. Then I worked in insurance and pharma for over 15 years. So there's that part of my background, and I'm an artist. So it's very much the one thing that's going to braid all of those pieces of my history together. And so maybe I'm moving a little differently because I've never had all three of my parts of my life overlap in this way.
0: This project isn't just a single entity that will eventually as you say be concluded and and formed you are also building this as a process mm-hmm. so that it can be replicated in other communities that may have similar stories to tell, but they're uniquely their communities' stories.
1: Exactly. Like once you have a solid lit review, talk about being a nerd. Okay, so once you have a solid lit review and you've dug through the literature and found all these really interesting things and built the processes, some of them are going to be very specific to black communities. But some of it's just going to be about either BIPOC communities, because BIPOC and black are not the same thing always, um, or sometimes it can be specific to other communities. And if I build this up right and I build the, and when you look at the interview guide, if it asks the right kind of questions, there's nothing that says, even though I am not necessarily part of a first-generation immigrant community, that you couldn't have the same project exist there. Or I'm not trans. People of, people of trans experience could have a similar conversation about what they're experiencing using the same interview guide, but I don't need to be a part of it because that's not my experience and I shouldn't be the voice that's writing it or driving it forward. If I do that one little piece right, maybe different people can have similar artistic conversations. And I think if I'm going to do anything that lives beyond this moment of time that I'm on earth, this seems like a really good way way to spend my time.
0: It feels very generous. And I say that because being someone that is creative to yield that to someone else whether it's to relinquish how people respond to a creative expression a creative piece or to hand over an entire format for someone else to create their own output from from this i think it's an act of generosity because i think it's hard for creative people to give up to someone else their creativity i guess
1: in a way but what i'm really giving away is the kind of like the underpinnings like the poem, and I've been giving away poems since I figured out how, how to talk out loud. Like I have never not given away a poem. If I do what I do well, people carry it with them either through a video or on the written page, or if I'm really lucky, the poem just sits in their spirit and sometimes they say, I heard this thing one time. So I've been doing that the whole time anyway. But the underpinnings and the like, hey, I read these cool little journals and here's a lip review and here's an interview guide that got built from the lip review. I'm okay with giving that out because if all of us, do better that means something it means something really important
0: it feels like you've spent a lifetime giving out and i say that given everything you've just shared with us so far but also because i know that you had that experience with slam but you've evolved to a place where you've been sort of acknowledged as a a talent a champion and you were turning that around and giving that back. You have taught SLAM. You're continuing to engage with up-and-coming writers, and now you are co-leading the Nebraska Writers' Collective. Best job ever, yeah. Tell me about the best job ever. Why is it the best job ever?
1: So the Nebraska Writers' Collective has been around for 15 years. We're actually celebrating our 15th anniversary this year, and it's always been an organization that was rooted in how can we get poets Recognized. How can we get poets' work? How can we get poets connected? And how can we connect the larger world to the poets so they recognize this amazing thriving community that we have? So it's always been that, and I've been involved since its inception. About 13 years ago, um, our previous executive director, Matt Mason, went to see a documentary called Louder Than a Bomb at film streams and was like, that's cool. It's like a poetry slam, but for teenagers, we should do that. And so he was like, sure. And then he talked to some people and they got the money together and they put on the first season of that program, which was at the time called Louder Than a Bomb. And we've since rebranded it to all rights reserved. We have served as many as 45 schools across Nebraska and Southwest Iowa every year. We take amazing teaching artists who are poets, MCs, children book writers, fiction writers and playwrights and match them with schools where they can go in each week and talk to people about developing their message. And then at the end of it we have a huge tournament and we've been doing this for again this is going to be our 12th year. What is amazing about this is I I have never not gone to this tournament and learned something about myself and what's possible with the written spoken word because there's never going to be a time that the generation that's coming behind us hasn't figured out a different way to crack the code right or done something miraculous if I'm not crying something miraculous is happening but also if you get someone to slam that means they have thought about what they think and what they feel about something they've written it down they have accepted feedback about it and learned how to edit. They have learned how to give feedback to their peers to improve their message. They have figured out the best way to communicate what they feel strongly about to son, to an audience, whatever that audience might be, and then they get on stage and they talk about it flat-footed and unashamed. That is, if they never slam again after they leave our program, I'm just fine, because that's a core skill. Those babies can go into any other room and any other platform and run the table because they know what they're saying. They believe in what they're saying and they know how to communicate it. Like I get to do that. We have a new program called the youth poet laureate program. There's a Nebraska youth poet laureate. Her name is Aaliyah American Horse. She's from Gordon, Nebraska. She is beautiful. She is talented. She is, we've only ever had, she's our third youth poet laureate. And we just found out about a week ago that of all, Across the country, there are four finalists for the National Youth Poet Laureate role, which is the same role that Amanda Gorman, who read at the inauguration, had. She's one of four finalists for that same position. So we get to go to celebrate her in Washington, D.C. Uh, this year, we launched the North Omaha Writing Workshop. I might cry during this interview. It's fine, it's what I do. Um, <laughs> the North Omaha Writers Workshop was an idea I had when I decided to cycle out of pharma. And it's, I, I didn't have a lot of resources like LTAP or excuse me, All Rights Reserved or LTAP was not a thing when I was a kid and you kind of tripped and fell into an open mic and maybe found someone you could trust to give you feedback. And maybe somebody listened to you or maybe you didn't, somebody didn't. And then also as an adult, I looked around and realized if we talk about what's powerful about literate, about Nebraska Literature and poetry very rarely are the people we're talking about the people who are at the open mics the people who are running the open mics Black and brown voices are oftentimes excluded from that conversation and that's just that's not my I it doesn't sit right in my spirit So now we have we just started like two weeks ago and uh, we recruited a cohort of people we have grad professional and graduate level faculty members who will come in and teach craft workshops. We'll sit down together and we'll have feedback sessions so we can actually build a cohort of writers to give each other feedback on our work to try to drive ourselves forward. We're gonna publish their work at the end, we're gonna have a big party. But most but first and foremost, we're taking the time and intention to pour into writers of color. We're doing it in spaces that are in North Omaha, and all of us will learn to build community. And start to talk about the idea that it's not, there are different voices that are important to our community that aren't being heard. And if some part of my job is putting out a journal that draws attention to somebody who's been going to open mics but never got recognized by anybody else, or if part of my journey is helping the next state poet become the next state poet, that's a good life, right? That's affecting the community that raised me in a really positive way. Best job ever
0: how has this work this calling this vocation this expression how has that made meaning for you in your life
1: i spent a lot of years because i mean i was a i was a child of the 80s right <laughs> like capitalism was king like you had to go make some money you can be a poet in your off hours that's cute but you need to go get a job and i was actually quite successful corporately that was great i was able to move up i was able to get increased position and increase money it was it was fantastic also it was literally not what i wanted to do i was taking vacation time from my real good job to try to come and do this the best thing I can say about this period of my life and how I'm building meaning is the fact that my kid knows yes you can do that thing but also sometimes if you're quiet and you pay attention the universe helps build a path for you and when that path is available you can get to do the thing that moves you not the thing you have to do not the thing that pays the most the thing that actually moves you so There are things I miss about corporate America, like they have infinite resources, (laughs) seemingly, as opposed to running a mid-level nonprofit, right? But what they don't have is what I get to do every day. They don't get to sit at work and openly weep because someone just read a poem. They don't get to say, you know what, we're going to publish an anthology of youth writers and pay them for their work. My daughter gets to see me be a poet, and that is my job. When she says to me, but mom, you're a poet and you're my favorite one, that's life changing. That is meaning and direction. So I'm really, really happy about what I get to do now because I'm leaning into, my, leaning into my purpose. This is what I should be doing. And I know that because years ago I was on a conference call with some other artists and out of the blue, my grandmother's birthday is uh, 622. And I was like, I'm leaving corporate America. My grandmother's birthday is 622, so June of 2022, I'm out. My husband's literally in the background like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) But it turns out that uh, the previous executive director uh, was retiring, reached out to me and let me know what was happening. I applied for the job and I signed my contract. And my first day was June 1st, 2022. I'm where I'm supposed to be.
0: Would you please take us out with a reading?
1: Yay. Okay, let me read you a poem and one that's not too weird. I will read you a poem. It's a food poem, but it's a newer food poem. Preservation. There's a trick to muscling open a jar of hold over summer sweetness. A release of air before you can spread soft, thick fruit on bread or make spaghetti with tomatoes canned with salt, lemon, basil, and garlic. I want my daughter to carry this with her. Like her glee about sweet pickle slices made from freshly cut cucumbers. Like the way she always mimics the accent I always forget I have. I want to be remembered in the specific smell of biscuits, butter, and preserves. And the tang of pears pulled from a local tree, sealed and safely packed away for the winter. <laughs>
0: my guest today has been writer and performer Zadiga Poindexter Zadiga thank you so much for being on the show
1: thank you for having me
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. the music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.